Hey there, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, I am Ben Pakulski, hosting you with the greatest guests on the planet. That's my goal. I want to find people who are creating new paradigms, challenging their beliefs, and bringing us the best information that we can find. I do my best to not be dogmatic about anything. I'm not trying to tell you this is the right way. I'm just trying to provide information that allows you to make intelligent decisions to create your greatest life. Today's guest is Dr. Ken Berry. He's a ketogenic advocate from Tennessee, USA. He's an absolute wealth of information that is changing the lives of many, many people in his practice. So Dr. Berry is a physician, practicing physician. And he found many years ago that typical approaches to decreasing um, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, etc., were just not effective. And he started taking some approaches to his own diet that completely shifted the way he looked, the way he felt, and maybe most importantly, his health markers or indicators of optimized health. And when he noticed that, he decided to take action and apply it to all of his clients that come into the clinic and he's seen tremendous benefit. Now, not to say that this diet is perfect for everybody, but it's, in my belief, something that everyone should understand, should explore, and should maybe implement at least one time per year, maybe more, uh, when maybe you're not getting any sunlight exposure, maybe you're not getting any exercise or less exercise. Your body should be in a depleted state certainly of carbohydrate and maybe in a calorically restricted state, most likely in a calorically restricted state, if you want to optimize your life. Now, bodybuilders are going to say, well, I don't want to be in a calorically restricted state. I think you rethink that. I really do. And I don't talk about that a lot, but there's certainly a benefit even as a bodybuilder to resensitizing to nutrients, resensitizing to protein and certainly carbohydrate. So enough rambling for me, but I want you guys to really dive into this podcast with Dr. Barry because he's a really bright man and there's a lot of great wisdom to be pulled out of this podcast, particularly for people who are a little bit older. It seems that Dr. Barry really focuses on that slightly older demographic who's already insulin resistant, who's already a little bit overweight. So if you have anybody in your family and your close uh, proximity that may benefit from this or may be able to use it, you know, as first person I was thinking about was my dad, learning to understand that the old paradigm of the 1980s where, you know, fats are bad and I need to eat more carbohydrates. It's just a terrible idea for someone who's, you know, ultimately uh, living life with metabolic disease. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast with Dr. Barry. Today's podcast is brought to you by Fresh Best Olive Oil. If you guys haven't picked this up yet, guys, it's your last chance, I believe, to get it before they ship it this season because there's a very, very limited supply. So TJ flies over. This round is coming from Australia and New Zealand, I believe. And uh, he flies there, goes directly to the farms presses and ships within a very short amount of time and it's at your door within six weeks of pressing and this is the coolest thing on the planet plus it tastes amazing if you don't like olive oil it's because you've never tried great olive oil for the people that have tried it i want to hear from you guys let me know what you think am i out of my mind or am i just you know a little excited about this stuff i think it really is just a blessing to be able to try something that tastes this rich and fabulous and, and delicious and, and the aromas and the flavors on the back of your mouth are, are just second to none. So if you're someone who buys olive oil from even a conventional grocery store, a high-end market, or even one of the olive oil stores, you will notice a difference with these products. I guarantee that. They're absolutely phenomenal. Again, if you don't like olive oil, it's not for you. But if you do, you can head to getfresh35, getfresh35.com and get a bottle of olive oil sent to you for one single dollar. If you like olive oil, you're going to absolutely love this. This stuff is phenomenal. The health benefits are off the chain. I'd say 
probably 30% of my calories on an average day come from olive oil. I'm consuming a lot and, and it actually showed up a lot on my recent blood tests where you know, they're actually testing the lipid profiles and seeing what type of fats you consume most or what type of fats your phospholipid bilayers are comprised of. And it's for me, it seems to be mostly the fats from olive oil, which is, I believe, a good thing. I hope you guys are having an amazing day and head over to Get Fresh 35 as soon as you're done listening to myself chat with the amazing Dr. Ken Berry. Enjoy the show. Very cool. So lies my doctor told me, let's dig right into it, right? And that's a brilliant way to kick off you know, our conversation about what you do because you know, after we met at KetoCon this year, you took a great interest in what you do and obviously your amazing wisdom and your approach. So I'd love to hear from your perspective what exactly it is that you do that's changing the world. Well, basically, you know, I was in private practice for almost 20 years and I'm in the process of starting a small practice here in Nashville. And I just noticed that my patients kept getting more obese and more metabolically ill. And no matter how many pills and injections I gave them, none of it worked. None of it made them better. And so, you know, I could be proud that I was managing their chronic disease but in no way could be proud that I was helping them to heal or reverse any of these chronic diseases. And so I basically got sick and tired of that. And I also became sick and tired and obese myself. And at that point, I realized I had to do something about this. I couldn't go through the rest of my life being a fat, miserable doctor. And then at the same time, really, you know, getting paid to not help people optimize their health. That's such a beautiful perspective. And it's amazing that so many millions of doctors can go through, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of practice and never come to that realization. It's like, you're just basically keeping disease at arm's length, right? Rather than actually attempting to help make people better. How did that realization come about for you? Was it just like personal pain? Yeah. And I'm not sure even if you're following the standard of care and giving everyone the proper pills and injections, I'm not even sure if you are slowing down the chronic disease or not. And ultimately what we want to talk about is, you know, is mortality. Are you lengthening this person's health span and lifespan? And I'm not even sure that all the well-meaning doctors out there are doing that for their patients. I'm not sure I was doing that. I was perhaps modifying some of their lab results by the pills and injections but I wasn't really improving their health span or, or lengthening their lifespan. And I think that really should be the goal of every doctor. But basically, every doctor thinks patients, we secretly think that all of our patients are non-compliant, which means we think they don't listen to us. And so if I tell you, Ben, you know, you're morbidly obese, you need to lose some weight. So I need you to join Weight Watchers and join the gym and move more and eat less and burn more than you take in. And then I see you again in six months and you've gained three more pounds. I'm not going to say it to your face, but I'm secretly thinking, I know Ben's been laying on the couch eating Cheetos for the last mm-hmm. six months. There's no way he took my advice or he wouldn't have gained three more pounds. Well, at the point where I became a morbidly obese pre-diabetic doctor at my heaviest, I was 297 pounds. And I'm six foot four, so I like to think that I carried it well. But there's no way to deny that I was very metabolically ill and pre-diabetic. And so I decided to, you know, I was just eating basically the standard 
American crap at that point. That had worked for me my entire life. And I decided I'm going to have to tighten up. I cannot be a fat doctor going into people's, you know, exam rooms in my office telling them they need to lose weight. You can just see the that's completely anachronistic. I can't do that. It's, it's against all my nature. And so I implemented my nutrition education from medical school on myself and was very stringent about this. And so basically to sum up my entire medical school education on nutrition for just regular people, I eat lots of whole grains, I avoided all saturated fat, and I jogged. And that's basically the entirety of my medical school nutrition training. And after a month or two of that, I'd gained three more pounds. I had sore knees and, and sore ankles, I'm sure. sure I, was, I absolutely hated the jog. I would go jogging three days a week and my knees hurt. Everything hurt. I, I was just inflamed and miserable. But here's the problem, Ben. I couldn't accuse myself of being non-compliant. Right. I knew I was compliant. I lived with me. I knew what I was doing. And what I had been literally recommending to thousands of my patients didn't even work for me. And I consider myself to have pretty good genetics. You know, I mean, I'm not, you know, some people kind of get the snake eyes in the genetic lottery. I don't think I got that, but I was still, even the advice for me, who was previously very metabolically healthy, it didn't even work for me. That was my epiphany that, hey, you quite possibly don't know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to the care and feeding of the human animal. And so I went back to the drawing board and basically put everything I thought I knew on hold and said, I've got to look at some other perspective and some other angles because I know I was compliant. And it's quite possible looking back now that many of my patients did join Weight Watchers and did join the gym and did get off the couch and they were more active and they tried to eat less and move more and it didn't work for them either. Incredible. Now, it's great that you have that realization. Not everyone gets that opportunity, right? So many people look at people that are healthy and fit and go, well, what are they doing? And oftentimes those people are the ones that can get away with kind of whatever. Like you said, you had up to that point, you eat whatever you want. You always look great. And then eventually it catches up with you. You start looking for solutions. And your solution, as we now know, has been intermittent fasting and a ketogenic diet. Yeah, and I started out, the first three books I read were The Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson, The Paleo Diet by Lauren Cordain, and then I found a, an old tattered used copy of uh, Atkins Diet Revolution at a rummage sale for 50 cents. And those are the first three books I read. And, you know, I said, well, every single thing these guys say is exactly wrong based on what I was taught. But what I was taught ain't working. So maybe there's something to this. And so that's when I kind of started down the rabbit hole of lower carb, higher healthy fat, you know, primal ancestral paleo. And that led me inevitably to a ketogenic diet. And then when I discovered that, all of my symptoms got 80% better, if not 100% better. I immediately reversed my type two or my prediabetes. I never became type two, but I was almost there. So based on your resting glucose and, and insulin levels? Well, based on my A1C and yeah. my fasting glucose, and my A1C was up to 6.1 or 6.2. I can't remember exactly, but I was well on my way to becoming a type 2 diabetic, and that immediately come back down to normal. All of my inflammatory markers went back to normal. The severe rosacea that I battled daily went effectively went completely away. The chronic severe dandruff I'd had my entire life went completely away. 
the chronic severe allergic rhinitis that I'd had off and on the, my entire life went completely away. All these things just went away. And so it was at that point that I started to form a new paradigm, at least for me, and I hope that it's catching on with other people. What I had been doing my entire life, it's not that there's anything magic in the keto diet or the carnivore diet or the local diet. It's not that there's magic in those foods. It's just that there's slow poison in the other foods. And right. what I've been doing my entire life was slowly poisoning and inflaming my body repetitively three to six times every day when I ate. I would ingest a little slow poison, and that would lead to inflammation, which led to all of the things which I thought were just chronic, permanent things that I was going to have for the rest of my life. The only thing that didn't go completely away was my, I used to have severe heartburn, reflux, GERD, and it got 80% better on keto, but it didn't go completely away. Interesting. So... Tell me how it began for you, right? So this transition from looking at Marxist and stuff to, and Dr. Atkins stuff and, you know, obviously taking on a paleolithic approach, which includes some vegetables and some you know, tubers and things like this that are usually recommended in a paleo diet, shifting to a ketogenic diet. How did that happen? And why did you kind of land on, at least at this point in your life, this ketogenic lifestyle as being optimal and not deciding to include those carbohydrates strategically. Yeah. So, you know, when I was early in my career, when I was recommending the American Heart Association diet for people with high blood pressure and recommending the American Diabetes Association diet for people with diabetes, that's when I was getting metabolically sicker trying to follow those diets as well. And so when I read those three books, I immediately started implementing an ancestral paleo primal diet for myself. Because, I mean, I had, you know, this is the ADA and the AHA and the AMA we're talking about. These are big dogs. That mm-hmm. know what they're talking about, who am I, this little small town country doctor punk, who am I to say you guys are wrong? So I started experimenting on myself. And as that moved from a paleo primal into a ketogenic diet, I got so much healthier and lost so much fat that my patients started commenting on it and saying, what are you doing, doc? I want to do what you're doing. Because I had not been recommending it to my patients because I wasn't sure it was safe and healthy. I mean, there's, you know, at that time, there was virtually zero academic level research that even spoke about these things, much less tested if they were healthy or not. And so when a patient would reach out to me and ask me, what are you doing? I was honest. I would tell them, I'm eating a keto diet and here's a handout. I printed up maybe a 15-page little handout of what keto was and what the foods I was eating was, and I would just hand that out. And I think as of today, I've probably handed out about 30,000 copies of that, both in person and online, just because people keep asking for it. Uh, And so, but then when I saw, and I checked my labs every six months, Ben, so I could see that I was not doing any liver damage with this diet. I could see I was not doing any kidney damage. Everything was getting better and nothing was getting worse. Now, my total cholesterol and my LDL did elevate. I am a lean mass hyper responder, which some of your listeners may know what that means. If not, then go to the cholesterolcode.com and read Dave Feldman's excellent insights and research on this topic. I could see that I was not getting unhealthy on this diet. I was actually getting healthier. My HDL was coming down. My triglycerides were coming down. My A1C was back to normal. My C-peptide was back to normal. My fasting insulin was normal. 
all my inflammatory markers were back to the low end of normal. And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my most morbidly obese patients, some of whom are on the surgery schedule to have gastric bypass surgery. And I'm going to recommend this diet to them because they've tried every diet in the world, right? They got nothing to lose. They're about to have part of their guts permanently cut out. Right. Well, how am I going to hurt them by recommending this diet to them? And so I, I had an electronic medical record. I did a quick search and I found the 50 people with the highest BMIs in my practice. And as they would come in, I didn't actually call them and say, hey, come in. I would just wait for them to come because they all had chronic diseases, right? So they would come every three to six months. And I would give them my handout and say, look, I know, you know, you're thinking about gastro bypass or you're already on the surgery schedule. Before you do that, I wish you would give this three months. What's it going to hurt? It's just three months. And so many of them did and immediately lost amazing amounts of fat. I mean, their body fat percentage dropped precipitously. All their markers started to get better. They felt better. I had one guy who weighed about 450 pounds, lose a ton of weight not literally. And he was also on the schedule for gastro bypass, but he was also on the schedule to have both of his knees replaced because his knee pain was just unmanageable without narcotics. And so he came back in six months. He'd lost, I don't remember exactly, but a lot of weight. And it called the orthopedic surgeon and canceled his knee replacement surgery appointment. He said, my knees don't hurt anymore. He was still morbidly obese, but the inflammation was so much better. His knees didn't hurt anymore. And so he wound up not having part of his guts chopped out and not having his knee joints sawed out and fake joints put in. He wound up avoiding all those three surgeries, which also come with a huge list of possible severe complications. And it was at that point I said, you know, I'm not seeing this hurt anybody. And it looks like everybody who eats it gets better. And so then I started officially recommending it for anyone with a BMI of 30 or above in my practice, which is kind of the cutoff for morbid obesity. So anybody who came in with a BMI over 30, I would give them the handout and I would talk to them about this diet and say, you know, I mean, I'm doing it. You can tell I look better. I've got all these other people doing it and they're doing great. And the lab work is getting better as well. It's not like it's making them sicker in some way. And so that's kind of how, my paradigm changed from just give them the American Diabetes Association diet handout and then pretend to yourself you did something good and meaningful and move on with your life. I actually started sitting down with my patients, something I'd never really done before, and having a discussion about the proper human diet with them. And it was, it was kind of a magical thing. Now, Dr. Ken, do you think this is the ideal diet for everyone or just people that are obese? I think there's a spectrum of the proper human diet. And for some people, that would be an ovo-lacto-vegetarian diet, where every single thing they eat is a real whole food, and they incorporate some eggs and some seafood into their diet so that they can get all the fatty acids that, and all of the vitamins and minerals that just are not present in just a vegan diet. I think that's part of the proper human diet. And then moving up the spectrum, or well, let's not say up because that sounds like a judgment. Moving along the spectrum, you come eventually to just a fatty meat only carnivore diet with or without organ meat, with or without nose to tail carnivore. And so somewhere in that spectrum from ovo-lacto vegetarianism to strict fatty meat carnivore, 
I think that spectrum is the proper human diet. And I think different people probably do better at different places along that spectrum. But I don't think there's a human being on the planet who needs sugar in their diet or need grains of any kind in their diet or needs industrial seed oils of any kind in their diet. No one needs that stuff. That stuff is slow poison and very inflammatory in nature. And when you eat it, it leads to an increased risk of chronic disease. All right. So you say you've given out 30,000 copies approximately of this book. Can you give me an idea for, so here's an example. You know, I want to forward this podcast to a certain number of people in my life and I want them to have, you know, the top action items that gets them excited to go out and pick up your book right now. What are like the first three to four things or the main three to four takeaways that they'll find in that book? So the main three to four takeaways from the book would be that you've been lied to. And the reason I chose the word lie instead of the word myth or misconception is because when your hairdresser gives you nutrition advice, you are, you know, then it's consumer beware. Basically, she has no, he or she has no fiduciary duty to you to give you proper nutrition advice. They can just tell you what they read in Cosmo or what they saw on MSNBC last night. They have no duty to you. All they have a duty to do is to cut your hair proper, right? Except for Ben. I don't think he goes to the hairdresser. But right. But now if you're a nutritionist or you're a dietitian or you're a healthcare provider, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a midwife, you have a fiduciary duty, which means a legal duty to not only give the proper advice, but to know what the proper advice is. And that's why I chose the title, Lies My Doctor Told Me, is because when a doctor gives you bad nutrition advice, that's legally a lie. I mean, that is a that doctor has misled you, and there can be long-term permanent health consequences for you because of that deception. Now, did the doctor mean to mislead you? Did the doctor mean to lie? No, of course not. All doctors are well-meaning. I believe that. But if we don't take the time to learn and take the time to know, then you're effectively doing harm when you took an oath to do no harm. And so there are chapters in the book about whole wheat and why that's not a good option for any human being. There's a chapter about dairy and my beliefs about dairy. The worst dairy in the world that you can consume is skim milk or any skim milk or fat-free dairy product, you're asking for obesity and inflammation if you consume that in any amount. There's a chapter about the sun, which has infuriated many a dermatologist because I love this quote by, or a paraphrase of Carl Sagan. If you come at me with an extraordinary claim, then you need to have extraordinary evidence to back that up, right? That. So if you come to me and say, hey, human beings have been playing in the sun for at least a quarter of a million years, but we've just discovered the sun's bad for you and you should stay out of it. And when you have to go out in the sun, you should use a sunscreen. That is an extraordinary claim. So don't come at me with silly little trials with small numbers that are done on donated foreskins. You're not going to be able to convince me of that extraordinary claim with silly, meaningless research. And that's all that dermatology has to show that sun exposure, getting a tan, increases your risk of skin cancer. That's a silly superstition. It's a medical myth. And people spend thousands of dollars putting slathering sunscreen on, which may actually be doing harm, 
lowering their vitamin D and not letting their body have sunlight, which is, I mean, there's nothing more natural than sunlight than breathing and drinking water. I mean, it is just as natural. So magically say, oh, no, the sun's bad. You should avoid it. Stay indoors. And even if you work in front of a window, you should use sunscreen. There's a chapter about that. There's a chapter about... Let's talk about where this came from, Dr. Ken, because I think it's important for people to understand because, you know, you saying that it's not true, if people's paradigm is, you know, the earth is flat, telling them the earth is round is going to be very, very hard. So why do you believe that it's not actually uh, in any way bad to be exposed to the sun? Well, there's no research that shows that it is. Now, there are multiple recommendations from the American Academy of Dermatology and from the American Academy of Family Physicians, all of them will recommend you limit your sun exposure and use a sunscreen. But when you say, my favorite question, since I've been able to speak the English language, is why? Why is that? So when you ask them why, they'll say, well, research has shown that. And then you say, what research? Could you print me out a copy of that research? Then when they, if they do, which they probably won't because they've probably not read it themselves, they've just followed the guidelines from their own high you'll see that this research is done on donated foreskins from circumcision. That's dead tissue. That's not even living tissue. And then they don't actually look for skin cancer. They look for markers that they think are related to skin cancer. And so if you go to your dermatologist and say, I want you to print me off the seminal study that proves beyond all doubt that sun exposure leads to increased risk of skin cancer. Print me off that study. You're gonna be shocked at what your dermatologist, either they'll get triggered and emotional and they won't hand you anything and tell you to get out, or the study they do print off for you, once you read it, you'll go, what the hell? That's it? That's what it's based on? It's ridiculous. Interesting. So now this is obviously one of the things you talk about in this handout, but when it comes to nutrition, like what are we looking at? My dad's a 65 year old diabetic. He needs to go on a ketogenic diet. He won't listen to me. What do you tell him, Dr. Ken? Well, I mean, I don't know. The problem is, Ben, is you're dealing with powdered butt syndrome. Your dad yeah. has seen your naked little butt, and he's seen you with, you know, pick your nose. He's seen you throw up. You're his child. And so forever, you're his little boy. Even if you were a brain surgeon and a rocket scientist, it's going to be hard for you to convince your dad of anything, Right. So a lot of people, that's one of the reasons I think my YouTube channel has grown so much is because people will send dad a link to my YouTube channel about yeah. type 2 diabetes and keto and say, look, here's a doctor who's got gray hair or two who's saying that keto is perfectly safe and fine. It's actually the ideal diet for a 65-year-old dude with type 2 diabetes. We watch this. And a lot of parents, that bypasses the powdered butt syndrome. And they're like, yeah, I'll watch it. No, you know, whatever. And then they wind up watching that video and two or three more. And before you know it, your dad's going to be trying to teach you about the keto diet because you bypass that law of human nature that, you know, it's very hard for a child to teach their parent anything, even if the child is right. Right. So what does an average day look like for one of your obese patients? Do you give them like a sample meal plan? Do you tell them what you eat or you just say, hey, here's what I think you should take out? Basically, I give them a list of stuff to avoid completely. I give them a list of things that they can eat as much of as they want, at least beginning. And then I give them a list of stuff that, that you can have a little bit of, but in strict moderation. And then I don't give them meal plans. I don't hold their hand. I say, go back into the world 
and live your life and try as best as you can to implement these things. And so I really tell them to just avoid three things, sugar in all its forms, any kind of grain whatsoever, and all industrial seed oils. Those are the three things that I tell them to avoid completely. And then there's a list of fatty meats and a list of dark green vegetables, leafy greens, that they can eat pretty much as much as they want, at least starting out on keto. And then there's a list in the middle of some berries and some fruits that they can have a little bit as a treat every now and then. And that's it. That's what the handout consists of. And then they just go and live their life. And every time they go to the grocery, they buy less and less stuff on the don't eat list and buy more and more stuff on the eat as much as you want list. And within a month or two, they've converted their kitchen into a keto kitchen or at least a low carb kitchen. And they're reaping the benefits. And it's not like it's hard. It's easy. The food is delicious. The food is obviously natural. You can't say that broccoli or ribeye is somehow unnatural. It is the most natural food on the planet. Mm -hmm. Where do you sit on this carnivore scale that exists now and this belief that's going around that vegetables in and of themselves should be removed from some people's diet? I think for some people, that's absolutely true. And I think for some people, certain vegetables can be quite inflammatory. I think for other people, and I would fall into this category, vegetables still just have too many carbohydrates in them and will still spike your blood sugar and your serum insulin level enough that you're not going to be able to lose the fat that you want to lose and you're not going to be able to keep your blood sugar and your serum insulin level as low normal as you would like for it to be. I've been a carnivore for almost 20 months now. And that's what I need for my keto diet to be as close to zero grams of carbohydrates a day as I can get it. If I eat more than that, I'll start to hold fluid and I'll start to gain fat. Even if I eat 20 grams a day of total carbohydrate, I would slowly probably gain 10 pounds back. And I'm at 233 pounds right now. That's the lowest weight I've been in 20 years, if not more, probably 30 years, actually. Do you think somewhere in there actually lies an inherent problem, meaning I can't eat carbohydrates or I gain fat, or do you sometimes strategically add in carbohydrate refeeds? So I feel like I have become, with age, and probably I had the genetic predisposition to do this, but with age, I've just become more and more insulin resistant or hyperinsulinemic, whichever way you want to look at it. And so I have a much more aggressive insulin response to any carbohydrate, even the carbohydrate in broccoli and Brussels sprouts, than many people have. And that's why I think for many people, a keto diet full of, you know, the brassicas and dark leafy greens is great. For me, it still has too many carbohydrates. And so I think that I just am so insulin resistant or hyperinsulinemic, I have to get as close to zero grams of carbohydrate as possible if I ever have any hope of seeing this six pack that's buried in here somewhere. <laughs> Very funny. Now, is there anything you can do then to begin to reverse that insulin resistance? Is it is an exercise thing? Is it an age thing? You know, supplementation? What are your kind of key strategies? And do you think that's even something you should worry about at your age? Well, I think it's probably a physiological law that the older you get, the more insulin resistant you become. I think that's pretty much, we can just see that in large population studies. And so I want people to understand being insulin resistant is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily pathology. When a woman becomes pregnant, she becomes much more insulin resistant than she was before she got pregnant. And that is the body's attempt 
to add five or 10 pounds of fat to her body. Your body, when you're pregnant, it wants you to have that. It makes perfect evolutionary sense that as you get older, you need five or 10 pounds of fat stored as energy, just in case the tribe leaves you behind or you fall in a crevasse and you can't get out for two weeks or you break a bone and you have to lay around for two weeks. You need that five or 10 pounds of stored energy, which is what fat is, in order not to starve to death and die. So I think that this is our genetics trying to protect us. But now in modern society, when obviously there's food everywhere, it turns out it feels like pathology now, even though I think it's just normal physiology. I think the more active you are, you can you can decrease the effects of insulin resistance. I think the more muscle mass you put on, it gives your body more places to stuff the glucose when you do eat carbs. And mm-hmm. let everybody know, when you eat any carbohydrate, it breaks down ultimately into glucose and fructose. Whether that's the carbs in a jelly donut or whether that's the carbs in organic non-GMO broccoli. All carbs break down into glucose and fructose, the end. There is no exception to that. And so for most people, they can tolerate the carbs in raw broccoli because it's released so slowly that they don't really get the spike of glucose and insulin that's going to turn off their fat loss. Some people like me and other carnivores I know, if they eat any any amount of carbohydrate much at all, they're going to start to gain fat. And so I think you can do things to make the impact of your insulin resistance less noticeable. But I don't know if you can reverse it or not. Super interesting. How much exercise are you getting on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so uh, a lot of people think I work out all the time, but I don't. I hadn't worked out at all in my 40s, like none, zero. I had a farm, and I worked on my farm. You know, I'd take the chainsaw, cut up stove wood, work with the goats and the pigs. I would do physical labor, but as far as going to the gym and working out, I didn't do that for at least a decade in my 40s. Starting at age 50, I wanted to kind of show people, yeah, you can put on muscle with keto. You sure can. There's no reason you can't. And so I actually bought a weight set and got a Smith cage and started actually working out and was putting on muscle. Then we had the office fire. And then we just recently had the house fire, lost our house. And so a lot of people out there think there's some conspiracy against me, but I think it's just bad luck. I don't know. (laughs) right? But even without working out, eating as much fatty meat as I do, I just tend to hold more muscle. I used to hold, and I think that makes perfect sense anthropologically, but I probably average working out twice a week, and I don't do any cardio ever. I'd rather be poked in the eyes, get on a treadmill, but I do, I will go over, we have, we're in an apartment complex right now, so I'll go over to the weight room, and I'll do a day of push, chest and triceps, a day of pull, back and biceps, and then a day of legs, and I'll do that split, but it might be three days in between each workout, right? Because I actually hate working out. I'm so ADD. I want to be doing five things at once and I can only do one thing when I'm working out. Right. What do you say to people who feel that a standard American diet is equally as effective as keto provided you're in a caloric deficit? Like what is your argument against, hey, if I'm supposed to eat 2,000 calories a day and eat 1,500, it doesn't matter where they come from. Yeah. There's multiple arguments against the calorie in, calorie out model. I personally know three guys who were eating five, six, and 7,000 calories a day, respectively, of keto calories. And they were working out just as hard on that diet as they were on the previous diet, which is three or 4,000 calories. And they did that for months and didn't gain a pound, didn't gain an ounce. 
really actually got leaner. So there's multiple examples of people eating a hypercaloric diet and not working out any harder. So they, you can't say they were ramping up how much they burned by exercising more. They weren't. They were doing the same workout before and after, and they actually got leaner by eating more calories. Uh, I've seen that multiple times. Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, that's an excellent book that anybody who still believes the calorie in, calorie out model of fat loss should read. And a good way to think about this is to realize when you say, I'm trying to lose weight, just move more and eat less. Actually, you're not trying to lose weight. What you're trying to lose is fat, right, Ben? Right. So nobody wants to lose muscle. And nobody wants to lose bone density or liver or connective tissue. We don't want to lose any of that. We just want to lose the fat. And so weight loss probably does respond to calories in, calories out. Because obviously, if I brought you to my farm in Tennessee before it burned and locked you in my barn before it burned down and just fed you 500 calories a day, you would lose weight 100%. No ifs, ands, or buts. But you would not only lose fat, Ben, you would also lose muscle and you would lose bone density. You would lose weight overall. So what I think the question is, is can you lose fat without being in a calorie deficit? And I think you absolutely can. We see it thousands of times in people who reach out to us on social media. If you're trying to lose fat, then it's a hormone issue. It's not a calorie issue. You've got to get all of your hormones in the proper position, including insulin, including your thyroid hormones, including your adrenal hormones, and including your gender hormones. And eating a ketogenic diet, somewhere along that spectrum of the proper human diet I talked about earlier, that tends to move all of your hormones, including leptin and ghrelin and protein YY, all of them go in the right direction when you eat that diet. And that sets you up for fat loss, which is really what we all mean when we say, I want to lose weight. Interesting. Now, do you think your ketogenic diet for, or let's call it the carnivore diet for the last 20 months has actually in some way contributed to the insulin resistance you're experiencing? Not at all. I was insulin resistant when I was eating the standard American diet and the American Diabetes Association diet. That's why I was gaining weight and my A1C was going up. All those numbers are normal now, and I'm at the lowest weight I've been in at least 20, if not 30 years. I don't think that I'm showing any signs of worsening insulin resistance because of the keto or carnivore diet. I've had some people just kind of mention that, you know, long exposure to ketogenic or low carbohydrate or no carbohydrate diet in some cases caused short-term temporary insulin resistance, meaning as soon as they ate carbohydrates, they had massive insulin spikes. So I just wonder if you had any experience with that. Yeah, if you eat carbohydrates, you are going to have a massive insulin spike. I'm not sure... I think that's true of all of us, though. Uh, people who are eating keto or carbohydrates are greater than before, right? It would have been, you know, someone who's measuring blood sugar, hadn't had carbohydrates in a while, now has carbohydrates, sees, you know, potentially a significantly greater insulin response or at least a greater uh, blood glucose response. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I don't think that's in any way evidence of worsened insulin resistance. I think that's much more along the lines of the addiction model. If an alcoholic hasn't had a drink in two years and then takes a shot of vodka, he's going to feel that vodka. He's going to get a buzz off that. Whereas before, when he was an alcoholic, if he drank that vodka, he wouldn't even notice one shot of vodka. He'd have to drink the bottle to feel it. Right. 
I don't really think that speaks to insulin resistance getting worse. I think that just means you've broken your carbohydrate addiction and your body is 100% fat burner now. And when you throw some carbs back in there, your body's trying to get rid of those as quickly as possible. I've seen you advocate intermittent fasting quite a bit, Dr. Ken. Is that something you do on a day-to-day basis and you advocate for most people? Yeah, I think intermittent fasting is very, very ancestrally appropriate. I didn't start out doing intermittent fasting or even really knowing it was a thing. I've been keto for many months before I came upon Jason Fung's excellent book, The Complete Guide to Fasting. And I read the book and I thought, that's very interesting. And then I started looking at my eating regimen. And I had already been intermittently fasting, not not on purpose, but because the fat and protein in my keto diet was so satiating, I just had stopped eating breakfast. And I very often I wouldn't eat my first meal of the day until well into the afternoon. And so I had just naturally moved to eating two meals a day. And then on carnivore, it's very common for me to just eat one feast a day of fatty meat. And that's it. I'm not I'm just not hungry. And so I don't eat. Now, some people will start out with intermittent fasting first and then come to keto later. It doesn't offend me. Either way, you get to keto and and intermittent fasting, you still win either way. And I think that intermittent fasting doesn't have to be part of a ketogenic diet, but I think it just naturally becomes a part of it because you're not hungry for so many hours a day that it may freak you out or may make you curious. You're like, what the hell? Why am I not hungry? And then you start looking around and you discover intermittent fasting that you were already doing naturally. Have you or anyone you know of done any kind of extensive testing on vitamin and mineral profiles on carnivore and fatty acid profiles, like something like an organic acid test, just so you could see, like, I'm curious, having one meal a day, mostly fat, I'm, I'm not sure how much organ meat, what do fatty acid profiles look like? What do vitamin and mineral profiles look like within your body? I haven't been checking mine. I try to get my labs checked every six months, but I have been checking vitamin C levels along the way. And even though I hadn't eaten a, a shred of any plant product in six, nine, 12 months, my vitamin C level was still in the lower limit of normal. So it was still within normal limits, right? And it was on the lower end, but I don't have any signs of scurvy whatsoever. I actually get compliments on my skin every day. People tell me it looks like I'm aging in reverse. If a low vitamin C or any other vitamin or mineral deficiency were present, one of the very first places you see that pop up in the human animal is in the skin and in the hair and in the teeth. These things start to get look worse, look you know bad. They start to fall out. None of that stuff started happening to me yet, and it hasn't happened to any of the hundreds of carnivores who I interact with both in person and online every day. Nobody's had that. But I know for a fact that my vitamin C level is still within normal limits, even though I haven't eaten a shred of plant products. And there's a couple of theories about that. So even though if you look up red meat and liver on the nutrition charts, they'll say they don't contain any vitamin C. A lot of carnivores think they do contain a small amount and it's enough to keep your vitamin C within normal limits. I really like the hypothesis that when you don't eat any vitamin C, we actually ramp up our machinery to create vitamin C. Again, many mammals can do this and it looks like that human beings lack a key enzyme in order for that pathway to work. But it's not outside the bounds of possibility that when you don't eat any vitamin C, when you're not eating tons of fruit and vegetables, 
you might be able to start producing that enzyme and ramp back up your vitamin C production pathway. I'm not saying that happens. I'm just saying that's a very seductive hypothesis. Interesting. Now, uh, Dr. Ken, I know you talk a lot or have spoken a lot with Dr. Nicola Antonio about sodium. I'd love to hear your perspective on necessity of sodium in a carnivore and keto diet. Yeah, that's another chapter in the book. As my doctor told me, is that salt is bad for you, that you should limit your salt. Dr. D. Nicola Antonio has a great book called The Salt Fix, which everybody whose doctor has told them to limit their sodium intake should read. Because again, it's just like the sun causes skin cancer. When you say that eating salt will increase your risk of heart attack and stroke, when you say to your doctor, why is that? Show me the research. The research is ridiculous. And D. Nicola Antonio destroys the research in his book where he shows just how fallacious it is. Basically, the researchers take their preconceived notions that salt is bad. They set up a study that's jury rigged that's going to show that. And then when they find the results, the results barely show salt is bad, even in that toxic environment. And so salt, all mammals crave and need salt, not just humans. I think you're a hunter, Ben, and you know that deer and antelope will walk for miles to find a salt lick. And there's actually a video I posted on my Facebook page the other day of these goats that will climb a sheer face of a dam because there are certain rocks that are salt rich and they'll climb and literally risk their life to lick that certain rock that's 100, 200, 300 feet up. And they'll take their little babies with them because they know that those baby mammals have to have salt for proper and optimal function. Humans are the same way, we're no difference. That's the reason that we crave salt is because we need it. So interesting. So how do you think salt became such a bad, almost like a four-letter word, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nicola Antonio goes into detail about the history of how that medical myth came about. And it's fascinating to watch because at each step of the way, the researcher or the doctor or the organization fully believed that they were giving great nutrition advice to people. No doubt. There was no conspiracy There was no evil in this. At each step along the way, they felt like they were doing a good, morally beneficial thing, but they were just wrong the entire time. Super interesting. I mean, I guess you could see how taking a little bit of sodium might increase blood pressure temporarily. So see how people would jump on that and go, well, that's a bad thing. That's going to hurt you. And especially with people with high blood pressure to begin with, you can see how that And if you gorge on way too much salt, which would be noxious to you because after you've gotten enough salt, your taste buds basically turn off and then salt is almost repulsive to you. But if you ate past that mechanism and forced yourself to ingest salt, you could raise your blood pressure three or four points. No doubt about that. But when you limit your salt, when you eat a sodium restricted diet, you actually raise your cortisol levels and you actually decrease your heart's ability to pump blood and function. And so the reality is, is you actually increase your risk of a heart attack or a stroke more by limiting salt than you do by just eating salt to taste. Now, if you gorge on salt and eat more than your body wants, you might increase your risk of heart attack or stroke a tiny bit, but I'm not advocating that. What I advocate is that listen to your body. It is hardwired to crave salt if you need salt. If what you're eating doesn't taste salty enough, that means you need to add some salt to that. Now, if you add enough salt to it that it's repugnant to you, you put too much salt and you don't need that much salt. Your body's hardwired to tell you how much salt you need. It's exactly like, how many times did you breathe in the last minute, Ben? 
six. Are you tracking that? Are you recording <laughs> that? No. Yeah. Your body's got that. That is hardwired. Even when you're right. asleep, your body's going to breathe when you need to breathe. The same right. goes for, for thirst. If you're thirsty, truly thirsty, you'll drink a cup of water. You don't care because your body will make you get that water somehow. The same goes for salt. It is hardwired. It has been a drive in all mammals for millions of years to get the salt we need. And so to now say, oh, salt is bad for you, that's an extraordinary claim. You better have some extraordinary research to back that up. What do you say to parents trying to get their children to eat more healthfully? Do you suggest leaning more toward the ketogenic lifestyle and getting kids onto more fats and proteins? Or do you still think that children should be having some grains and carbohydrates? I think fatty meat is vital for proper brain development. We'll see research coming out and there's research already in existence that that's not up for debate. You have to have the nutrients in fatty meat to develop a human brain optimally. With that being said, also children, remember I said earlier, the older you get, the more insulin resistant you get. On average, most kids are very insulin sensitive and very metabolically resilient. And that's why I used to play basketball with a guy who lived on Pepsi and Cheetos. That was the entirety of his diet. He came from a very poor family. They couldn't afford anything. And he had a six pack and he used to kick my ass regularly on the basketball court. Great player. But that was his entire diet, right? Unless he got something at school lunch. But I think it's perfectly appropriate and acceptable and ideal to move your child slowly and lovingly towards at least a paleo diet full of berries and other things like that, or and then eventually to a ketogenic diet. But you don't have to do it quickly. You don't have to be keto police or keto Nazis. You don't have to be a keto bully. Because kids are so metabolically resilient, you've got months you can do this. You can do it so slowly and so ninja-like that they don't even really recognize anything's changing in the household. So the worst thing to do is to go home and put your foot down and say, this is a keto house, damn it, and we will not have any of this stuff in there again. There's no reason to do that unless your child's morbidly obese and has type 2 diabetes or fatty liver, then maybe you should do that. But if you have a relatively healthy looking kid, don't do that. Just every time you go to the grocery, buy less of the crap and buy more real food. And then you can just say, oh, Johnny, I'm I forgot the Doritos. I'll try to remember them next time, but I did get some blueberries. You can have some of those if you want, right? And so just these gentle, loving substitutions. Oh, I forgot the Pop-Tarts, but I made some keto mug bread. You want some of that? And if they don't want it, they can go play, and that's intermittent fasting. And then when they get truly hungry, they'll come in and they'll eat the blueberries and the keto mug cake and probably a few pieces of bacon and maybe an egg. Boom, you just had a keto meal. And I think that's how every parent should do this. It shouldn't be a fight in your household. It can be a, it can be done very slowly and very lovingly. Dr. Ken, you're awesome, man. Where does our listeners find more from you and where can they pick up your book? So I have a little YouTube channel that I post videos on. I try to post one a week. If you just search Dr. Ken Berry on YouTube, you maybe can find me. I have a Facebook page I do a lot of work on. And the same way, Dr. Ken Berry, I've got Twitter, I've got Vero, I've got Gab, I've got even TikTok, Ben. I'm on TikTok trying to reach the teenagers before they become morbidly obese. And the book is available in paperback and Kindle, wherever books are sold. And now it just came out in Audible version. And so if you're like me and you're spoiled by Audible books, you can actually listen to lies my doctor told me instead of having to sit still and read it. 
Excellent. Now, what's the number one book you've gifted in the last 12 to 24 months? There's probably two. It's probably D. Michael Antonio's book, The Salt Fix. And then I just keep giving people copies of Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes. Okay. Awesome. Those are both uh, fantastic books. And I know Gary Tobbs gets a lot of negative press from the anti-keto zealot. So I'm glad you're a supporter. I think he's doing a great thing. And I think he's got great intentions. So, all right, Dr. Ken, we appreciate you so much. Uh, I know you're a busy man, so I won't keep any more of your time or take any more of your time. But so great to have you on. And I look forward to continuing our relationship in the future. Oh, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to sit down to a steak with you again. Yeah, exactly. We'll go out and get some more meat. Heck yeah. All right, buddy. Have a great day. All right, later. Hey guys, just one more thing for me before you go. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Dr. Ken Berry. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for being here always. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for the amazing reviews. My life is truly blessed. I get to travel the world and interview some of the greatest minds on the planet. And we have some really incredible things in store for you guys in 2020 as we upgrade the production value, as we upgrade the video quality and content and do our best to bring you as many videos as possible uh, for this podcast. I, we're going to say about 80 to 90% of the podcast in 2020 will be on YouTube video format because I know a lot of people like to watch video because it's a little more engaging. Sometimes we do some demonstrations and it's important for you guys to be able to engage. Um, so truly blessed to be able to live this life and learning from the greatest people on the planet. I hope you guys like it too. If there's anyone you want to hear from, any particular guests you think I should have, send us a message. You can reach us on Instagram at the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. You can also uh, reach us on uh, Twitter. So that Twitter, you just want to go to IFBB Ben Peck, or you can also reach out to the Muscle Maven who tends to orchestrate all these things much more effectively than I do. If you did enjoy the show, guys, I would appreciate a review and certainly a subscription on iTunes because that's what drives the podcast. If we get higher ratings on podcasts, we get more viewers. More viewers means we can get better guests for you. And there's some awesome guests in store. Have an amazing day, guys. And don't forget to get your bottle of fresh pressed olive oil, last chance. Get Fresh 35 for one single dollar. And unfortunately, for those outside of the U.S., that is only in the U.S., but they are certainly uh, blessing all of us Americans with olive oil from South America, from Australia, from Europe. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Enjoy the day. appreciate you guys being here and live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.